We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Nick Whalen here with Alex Barutha and James Anderson. Guys, uh, over the last couple of months, we've taken a look back at a couple of drafts, at several individual playoff games. Um, you know, really from the last 25 years of NBA basketball, we've kind of jumped around based largely on what's available in decent quality on YouTube. This time we decided to mix it up a little bit and you know, we'll turn the clock back to 2015. So only five years ago at one of the more memorable second-round series. Not just an individual game, but the full series, taking a look at 2015 Western Conference semifinals between the Clippers and the Rockets. Of course, the Clippers jumped out to a 3-1 lead in the series, and the Rockets came roaring back. I think Game 6 is probably what most people remember, the Josh Smith, Corey Brewer, Terrence Jones-fueled comeback while James Harden is on the bench. Uh, that, of course, set up Houston to, to take Game 7 at home. We kind of debated on what to do this week, but um, you know, ultimately settled on this. And yeah, Alex, you were kind of the driving force behind this series. So, what is it about this series that that is so memorable to you? You know, five years later. I think this was a really interesting time for a lot of teams, uh, or, or both of these teams, and a lot of players on these teams. Like we get kind of the emergence of James Harden. He comes. Uh, he's the runner-up. Uh, for MVP behind Steph Curry this year. This is also kind of the turning point of like the, you know, LeBron's end of like MVP runs. 
Um, and then we get prime Dwight Howard, or I guess the end of Dwight Howard's prime. Um, and that clashes with the Clippers who were, you know, that, that lob city team, the 2015 team was, I think one of the most entertaining teams in NBA history. And one of my favorite teams ever, um, with, you know, Chris Paul, Blake, DeAndre, but they also had, you know, a good cast of role players like Redick, Jamal Crawford, Matt Barnes. Um, and I just thought it'd be, it was kind of like an interesting turning point for, uh, or the result of the series kind of was an interesting turning point for, uh, for both franchises and just a really interesting uh, series to look back at, a really entertaining one. Right. I mean, this is really as close as the Clippers ever got and, and arguably maybe their best chance to win a title during what was easily the most successful run in franchise history started in 2011 and, and ended you know, probably last season even. And obviously they're kind of in a new phase now with, with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. But uh, I mean, this team during the regular season won 56 games. They'd won 57 the year before 56 the year before that. Uh, so a lot of continuity with this roster, like you mentioned, a lot of good role players, not just for the Clippers, uh, but for the Rockets as well, uh, a, a lot of names as you go up and down this roster um, and a lot of guys who who ultimately ended up making a big difference for better or for worse um, in a series that that had plenty of stars on either side. But it, it was ultimately, um, you know, going through and kind of watching the condensed games uh, that we did through the series. You know, James Harden has his moments. Chris Paul, Blake Griffin have their moments. But I was you know, one of the things that really struck me is like how much Corey Brewer contributed. I mean, he averaged 15 points a game through games five, six and seven in this series. You know, Josh Smith obviously was huge in game six. Terrence Jones, like I mentioned, um, you know, despite having big time superstars in the series, the role players, I think, were really what made the difference. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought uh, when I was thinking back about this before actually watching any of it, um, I hadn't really thought of this as still being a part of Dwight Howard's prime, but he played really well in this series. He played even better the the, pre, the previous season, his first year with Houston. Um, I mean, I thought he put, like he stood out on a lot of the highlights uh, as just a force on both ends of the court, and him and Harden worked so well together. Uh, all of the role players on both of these teams just knew exactly what to do. Like the spacing was just really, really good, especially um, by the standard of the time. And everyone was just running to the corners and, and everyone was making the extra passes and stuff. So yeah, it was, it was um, pretty high level of basketball for a second round series. And Patrick Beverly didn't even play in the series, but he was on the team. I think he got hurt before the playoffs. He only played 56 games. So this, the, they, they were even supposed to have more, contributing role players, but then the, <laughs> the Patrick Beverly minutes turned into Pablo Prigioni minutes. <laughs> yeah, there was a staggering amount of Pablo Prigioni in these highlights. Not not necessarily being responsible for the highlights, but just being on the court. Like, it seemed like him or Jason Terry was one of, excuse me, one of those two was always uh, on the floor for Houston. And yeah, Prigioni is one of those guys who I think it's just maybe going to be lost to history, and perhaps rightfully so, because he, he ultimately wasn't that impactful. But I mean, he was like, what, like a 35-year-old rookie and really only played three or four years in the league. Like, unless you were really paying attention to the NBA for a very specific span, like Pablo Prigioni just goes like in and out of your memory. Both he and Jason Terry were 37 in this series. A young 37 for Jason Terry. Yeah, Jason Terry was just beginning his post-prime at this point. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Jason Terry was still um, making winning plays in this series. 
So you mentioned, Alex, that Harden finished second in MVP voting this season. This was this would kind of begin the run for him of three second place finishes in five years. He did, of course, get an MVP in 2017-18, but also finished second in 2016-17, uh, and then second again uh, last season, 2018-19. They, they mentioned, um, I don't know if it was on the telecast, or you also sent along a an incredible clip from a first take episode, um, which I think was was filmed after game four of this series, where they make it very clear that James Harden, at least according to reports, is kind of seething behind the scenes about not winning the MVP this season. And and this is the first of Curry's MVPs, not the unanimous one, uh, but the first place voting went uh, basically 75-25 in favor of Curry. If you look at the raw numbers, it's close. I mean, Harden's averaging about four more points per game. He's also averaging about four more minutes per game. Uh, the efficiency uh, obviously tilts pretty heavily in favor of Steph Curry. Just looking at three-point shooting, 44% compared to 38%. Uh, Curry, a slightly better free throw shooter, better from the field. Uh, but some of the advanced numbers, like win shares, win shares per 48, um, are really close or even favor James Harden. Is, is there any argument that Harden should have actually won this MVP? I, I think it's super close. Uh, yeah. I, think, I think Curry is the right pick. Uh, I think like history has probably borne that out to a large extent, but um, you know, I, I remember at the time thinking that it was really it was, it was close to a toss-up. Like this wasn't like he he definitely played well enough to win the MVP and and most mm-hmm. other seasons. I think I, I mean I think the minutes per game thing matters again, and this is something we keep coming back with with James Harden, especially like this year with like Giannis versus Harden, or even last year. If you if you do Curry and Hargens per 36 minutes, they're both at 26 points a game. Curry has more assists and fewer turnovers and is a more efficient shooter, and their net ratings are basically the same. Uh, Curry's is a little bit better. So, like, it's close, but I think I I wouldn't really entertain much of an argument for, for Hargan over Curry in this case. I think it's also important to note that Curry's team won 11 more games and was kind of the big story in the NBA this season. You know, I, I think going into the 2014-15 season, it was all about LeBron's return to Cleveland. That that dominated the offseason. But, you know, I mean, for much of the regular season, that Cavs team was was kind of shaky. I mean, they were basically 500 like halfway through the year. And obviously they end up making a run to the finals. But, um, you know, I, I think that like the Warriors kind of emerging and, and growing into the Warriors that we would we would come to know for the next five years was really the the dominant storyline. You know, I think Houston had a nice year, but th- there really wasn't like this huge positive feel or vibe around this Houston team like there was for Golden State. Yeah, I mean, it, he was definitely um, he probably had more to shoulder than than Curry did, just because sure. of the the players around him. But like, yeah, like I said, I mean, you could say Harden's been playing at an MVP level for the last like five or six years, but that doesn't necessarily mean he is the guy that should have won the MVP every single year during that span, but he was playing at a level where in many other years he could have won it. Um, I mean, Steph Curry, prime Steph Curry is one of the best players of all time. So, I mean, it's, it's tough to argue with that. And this, and this version of James Harden isn't the version of James Harden that we even have today. Like I went back and, uh, cause I noticed, you know, watching a lot of these games, you know, these are basically 10-minute condensed versions, but you don't really see a lot of, like, hardened ISOs into scores. It's still a lot of pick and roll and stuff like that. So I went back to NBA.com, 
they don't have isolation numbers for 2014-15, but they do have them for the next season, 2015-16. And Harden was at 6.9 isolation possessions per game in 2015-16. This year, he's up to 14. So he used, I mean, less than half of the amount of ISO possessions in, like, the the 2014-15 season as he is today. So, like, they were a lot more similar, Curry and Harden, um, back then than they are, like, today, for example, as, as far as style goes. Do you think that they, the Rockets, were more, are uh, better suited for the playoffs, playing the style they played back um, during this series, or the current more ISO heavy style? Like just just when it gets into the playoffs, do you think that they are better one way or the other? That's an interesting question because I I can't remember who said it. I think it was on one of the segments, but they had mentioned that when you know. I think it was, maybe it was Kenny Smith. I can't quite remember. Uh, one of the analysts said that the Rockets are easy to guard uh, partially, and this was obviously after it looked like they were going to lose the series, but easy to guard because Harden does so much ISO. And so if you kind of transport that today, you would think they would be even easier to guard today. I, I think, I mean, I'm generally in favor. Like I would, I would rather, I think teams are harder to guard when they're more balanced. And so I understand like what the, the Rockets are doing with shooting a ton of threes and getting to the rim and stuff. But I think I, I don't know. I mean, I like for the, the 14 or 15 isolation possessions a game is like a ton. And I, I don't think that's necessarily the best way to do things. You kind of you kind of like set yourself up um, like it just, you're just all in on this one guy having to carry right. you every single game. And if mm-hmm. that one guy runs out of gas or just, you know, for whatever reason, just isn't getting it done, you're just, you're super toast. Whereas like back then they were, they were playing sort of um, a style that allowed them to come back and win uh, with him on the bench. Like, I don't, I don't see any <laughs> right. scenario where this year's Rockets team would come back and like win a game like that with Harden out of the game. Um, but I mean, I guess maybe that's unfair to say because this is one of the more improbable comebacks when you think of the players involved making the shots and the player on the bench, like it's something that we've really never seen before or since. I think it's worth noting the personnel differences as well. Like <clears throat> you would think based on who is on the team in 2015, that that would be the team that's more ISO heavy. You know, you, it's kind of just Harden and then you have eight guys who are all averaging, at least 10 points per game, but he's the leading scorer on the team by 12 points per game. And you still have Dwight Howard. Um, who, like you said, I, I wouldn't say this is prime Dwight Howard. He, he played 41 games this season was, you know, was kind of in the throes of the the back issues that would end up really derailing his career. But I mean, when healthy and for the most part, it looked like he was pretty healthy in the series. He was kind of a monster. So I think having Dwight maybe forced them to play a little differently than, than they would probably want to. Um, but it's just interesting that a couple of years later they add Chris Paul and then eventually add Russell Westbrook. And I guess it's understandable with Westbrook because he too is such a heavy ISO player. But, um, you know, you would think as, as the, the higher end talent on the team improves, you know, Harden would maybe be more willing to, to kind of get rid of some of that playmaking of, you know, that playmaking responsibility. And instead it kind of went the other way. You guys think that, um, they could have gotten even more out of that Harden Dwight combo than they did. Like, yes. I, I feel like um, 
neither of them really wanted to play that way. Mm-hmm. So, like, if, if they just both embrace just running pick and roll, uh, like, 20 times a game, 30 times a game, um, and just throwing lobs to Dwight, like, I think that could have just been completely right. unstoppable. And it, and it pretty much was unstoppable when they ran it, but it, that, like, just wasn't really how either of them really wanted to play. Right. I think Dwight Howard wanted to post up and do jump hooks and get blocked by DeAndre Jordan. And I think Harden probably wanted to play then like he plays now. And like, I think it was not comfortable for either of them to play the way that was most effective. But like you said, when you watch these highlights, it's like, I mean, Dwight, he's right up there with DeAndre Jordan, who at the time was probably the most athletic big man in the league. And just having somebody who can finish and is that big and that strong, I I think it was a huge advantage that Houston never truly fully took advantage of. Yeah, and I I can understand then why they, like, I mean, they were mostly using him for lobs at that point. And then it's like, well, why are we paying Dwight Howard to just catch lobs? Because at that point, I think, you know, there was still that the feeling that Dwight was someone you would post up and, and do that, even though it wasn't necessarily effective or someone you had to to pay for big time. and was this big name. It's like, well, if all we're doing is throwing lobs to him, can't Clint Capella do that? And, you know, eventually and now, now it's got, can't Robert Covington do that. Yeah, yeah. We Well, exactly. Yeah. Now we've gotten to the point where <laughs> should we even throw lobs? Uh, <laughs> so. I think it's also interesting to note that this this was kind of right in the beginning of Houston becoming the brand of three-point shooting. You know, I mean, obviously the Warriors were doing it as well, but the Warriors were doing it more efficiently, whereas Houston was just kind of going all in on volume and, and shooting it relatively efficiently. But uh, in terms of volume, they were leading the league virtually every single year and never falling below second in the NBA in attempts. So, you know, I remember at the time, a lot of the conversation was, man, Houston's really shooting a lot of threes. Are they taking too many? During this season, they took 32.7 threes per game. And this past season, they were up to 44.3. So it, it seemed like a ton back then. And they've now upped it by 12 more per, or yeah, 12 more per game just five years later. That's crazy. And they didn't have, um, like, like we mentioned earlier, like when you just go down the list of guys on that team, like, Jason Terry and Trevor Ariza were good three-point shooters uh, next to Harden. But the rest of those guys, uh, man, they're, they're lucky they were going in for a good chunk of this series because um, they got they got really good play out of some guys that I thought were washed up heading into this series. Trevor Ariza took the same number of threes as James Harden this season, and they played almost the exact same number of minutes. They both took 555 threes. <laughs> he was really good. He was. I, I have in my notes, Trevor Ariza was the perfect rocket. He was the ideal guy to play the small forward spot for them during this time. And he played like 38 minutes a game or something, yeah. too. Yeah, and they, I mean, they basically found, I mean, <laughs> they basically got him again, or the younger version of him now in like Robert Covington, you know, for this season. And I wonder if back then, you know, they, I mean, they probably would have been playing Trevor Ariza uh, at center if they could have back then or if they knew what they knew now. Um, but, yeah, it's it's crazy. So we should probably note that, and I completely forgot about this, Chris Paul did not play in games one and two of this series. He injured his hamstring in game seven of the first round against San Antonio, still played 37 minutes in that game. He suffered the injury at the end of the first quarter, played through it, uh, obviously, they needed to win that game seven, but you know you do wonder if, if if he knew it would end up costing him two games in this series, and 
Uh, he ends up coming back and playing well. Uh, certainly not the reason that the Clippers lost the series, um, but probably not at 100% until maybe game six or seven. Um, so that's something that's kind of hanging over the Clippers in this series. That somehow resulted in Lester Hudson playing like real playoff first half minutes for this team. That is, that is a name that I had not heard in a very long time. No, I had no idea he was even on this team until <laughs> going and reviewing this. So whatever game was his last in this series um, was the last time he ever played in the NBA. I mean, we talked a lot about the role players for Houston, but it's it's a who's who for the Clippers as well. I mean, if you look up and down that roster, uh, I, I think Houston maybe has some of the bigger names to remember, or at least for me personally, like Josh Smith, Terrence Jones, like those guys are, you know, Pantheon level uh, role players for me. But Jordan Hamilton, Jared Cunningham, Big Baby is getting minutes for this team. Chris Douglas Roberts uh, was on this team. You mentioned Matt Barnes, um, you know, kind of, I don't think Matt Barnes was ever as good as Trevor Ariza, but another one of those guys who just popped up on a lot of really good teams seemingly for like a decade straight. You know, just just a guy that if he's your seventh or eighth man, you're really comfortable with that. This was Hito Turkoglu's last year too. Oh, was, and I didn't even mention he got, a, he got a tiny he got a tiny bit of play earlier <laughs> in the series when when Chris Paul was unavailable. Uh, absurd look with the no-show socks. Like I don't know what's so striking about that, but it really stands out. Yeah, the. The the Clippers went like I guess seven deep, probably. Um, I don't. I'm not sure. I really count Glenn Davis into that. That would make it eight. Um, but even like Jamal Crawford was horrible in this series, like god awful. And I, I mean that that could have swung it. I mean he, I I Matt Barnes and Jamal Crawford combined were 52 of 151 from the field and 18 of 75 from three. Like they were, is that just, does, does the series basically just kind of come down to that? Like, like Jamal Crawford, Jamal Crawford shot 36% in the playoffs this year and 24% from three in the playoffs this year. And like the Rockets had guys playing way over their head in in terms of efficiency from the, the field and from beyond the arc is like, is that just basically what the series kind of boiled down to? It could, because if Jamal Crawford's not hitting shots, he's not. He's useless. He's yeah. completely useless. He's not really playmaking it that much, and you'd probably be better off just trying to run something else on offense. Or I mean, you're, you'd be better off just having J.J. Redick chuck up any three that has enough space to for him to get off the shot, you know, than like half the shots Crawford's taking. Like Jason Terry might outplay Jamal Crawford in this series. Like it's crazy. I don't even think it's close. Yeah, I think he did. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. If you're looking for a credit card that fits your lifestyle, look no further. U.S. Bank has credit cards that make every day rewarding, no matter what you're into. Feeling hungry? Check out the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points on takeout, food delivery, and dining. And get two times points at gas stations, grocery stores, and on streaming. That'll keep your wallet and your mouth full. Big spender? The U.S. Bank Visa Platinum Card has a low intro APR for large purchases or balance transfers. And you call the shots with the U.S. Bank Cash Plus Visa Signature Card. Choose two categories each quarter. Earn 5% back on your first $2,000 of eligible purchases from those categories. So don't just get a credit card. Get the right card to make every day more rewarding. Cash back, merchandise, travel rewards, and low intro APRs are waiting. Learn more at usbank.com slash credit card.
The creditor and issuer of these cards is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc., and the cards are available to United States residents only. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Now that Jamal Crawford's career, I, I guess, is technically over, he's going to go a full season without playing. I, I don't think he's filed retirement paper or anything like that. But do you think he is, in retrospect, overrated, properly rated? Uh, I think overrated if you i mean if you take one glance at like his playoff numbers you i mean it's not that it's 38 percent from the field 30 percent from three it's horrible that's a atrocious and 74 games so like yeah pretty big sample yeah i didn't and i didn't was, want that to be a leading question but i i think he because of how like cool and memorable his game is relative to the numbers i think he's pretty drastically overrated yeah, I mean, it like what it, it depends sort of what you're defining. Like, if we're yeah. just talking about like pure basketball, like impacting wins and losses on the court, like he's probably overrated. But he still was like really cool at some stuff that it's really cool to be good at. Like his his handles were, you know, probably top five um, throughout his prime, like among everyone in the league, and he had all those four point plays and stuff. Like, I mean, he, he's, he's kind of a fun player, but definitely oh. didn't impact winning or in, in a big way. Yeah. I mean, he's, he, he'd help your, you in the regular season, you know, obviously like, but playoff time is not, I mean, especially when things get more physical, he could just kind of be moved off his spots a little bit more. And I don't, I didn't realize his playoff numbers were that bad, but yeah, it's it, just, I mean, when you build a team around a guy being your six man and playing like 24 to 30 minutes a game and giving you 17 points and then playoff time comes and you can't rely on him to shoot like even passably good, that's pretty rough. I think he's victim to the same argument that you know you would you would now make against Allen Iverson. Obviously, Iverson is a much better player, much more accomplished player, but I, I think you know, when you really start to dig into the numbers, like Iverson is not a career, again, strictly by the numbers, that ages all that well. You know, I think he is, like his, just who he was as a player, his standing in the NBA is what you remember more than anything. And and again, obviously Iverson is a better player than Crawford, but I, I think I, I think the more that people focus on analytics and things like that, the more it hurts players like Crawford and Iverson. It, it'd be interesting, like, if just for that entire Lob City Clippers run, if like instead of Crawford, they had someone like George Hill in that role, um, right. like I wonder if that maybe they maybe they get to a conference finals, maybe even an NBA finals if they just had a little bit more efficient production and two way potential from that that spot. Because um, like, I, I think Chris Paul gets too much blame um, for for their lack of success in the playoffs. Um, I mean, Blake Griffin was really pretty bad defensively in the series. So that's, that was another thing that kind of stood out to me. Like, just couldn't really keep anyone in front of him. Like, it just seemed like he was always the one closing out on guys that were hitting shots. Like, I don't know if that's all his fault or not. But, um, yeah, I mean, if, if they just had a, a bit better version of that Jamal Crawford player, that might have been the difference. I mean, Austin Rivers was doing that for most of this series and most of the playoffs, I mean, Austin Rivers numbers are, you know, he's not, he's playing like 10 fewer minutes a game in the playoffs than Crawford, but they're both kind of these undersized scoring guards and Rivers is way more efficient. Like it's not close. Mm -hmm. 
So, but there's only, I mean, there's only so many minutes that you can, I mean, they probably should have played Rivers more in hindsight, but they probably, their roster wasn't built necessarily for that. You know, it would have required probably more big baby Davis at center, which you're probably not good either. And Spencer probably not. Was like doing nothing. No, FK Udo wasn't doing anything. He most certainly was not. Um, so looking at the series overall, um, Clippers go up 3-1. They all, all of their wins in this series are blowouts. They, they win by 16 points in game one. Houston comes back, wins game two. Clippers win by 25 in game three. And then they win by 33 in game four. And at, that's the point at which Stephen A. officially decides to write them off. The Houston Rockets are no barometer for this. They are getting annihilated. They are getting annihilated. Dwight Howard was a no-show yesterday. Picked up two early fouls in the first four minutes. He was done. But he's also done, Skip, because of this reason. I was told, I was told that James Harden was really, really ticked off that he didn't get league MVP honors. And that he was pouting a little bit. Yeah, that entire segment was was gold. I mean, Stephen A. saying that he is already, like, booking his flight to Memphis uh, for the next round to see Zach Randolph and Blake go, you know, go up against one another. And, um, you know, I mean, they were just absolutely trashing um, like the Rockets defense. And he he wasn't exactly throwing Harden under the bus, but he did mention that, like, oh, Harden's pissed about not winning MVP. So, so he also like starts getting on Harden for the 2012 finals. I, I, you know, he, you know, he, he got attitude. He's still upset at me because I, I, I talk, I, I remind the world how one of the great players in the game that they didn't show up for the NBA finals. And damn it, I'm not taking it back. You didn't show up. I don't know what you got this attitude for, but it is what it is. He He didn't show up. I mean, I know Harden didn't exactly light it up in that series, but that was the first time I'd ever really seen someone like truly hold that against him. Like he was just, he was coming off the bench. Yeah, that that's pretty weird. <laughs> like, how? Why would you expect him to have been so much better than than he was? Like, yeah, I mean, his argument was basically, "You want the MVP, but you didn't show up in the 2012 Finals." <laughs> so somehow there's a carryover there. I, I think it's also interesting to note. So this is second round, of course. Uh, both of these teams did they officially end a run for the teams that they beat in round one? So Houston beats Dallas in five games. Is that the official end of the the kind of Dirk Mavs title era team? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they would, they kind of blew it up intentionally after the finals, but this I think yeah, kind of put the the stake in it. And then on the other side, the Clippers beat San Antonio. They need seven games to do it, but at that point, the Spurs are coming off of back to back finals first. They had just won the finals one year earlier in 2014, and yeah, that team in some ways came out of nowhere by Spurs standards, just because, you know, Tim Duncan was aging. That was really the year Kawhi Leonard took a step forward. You know, they, it was role players are kind of who ended up winning them that title in 2014 is the shooting of guys like Danny green. Um, so I don't think there were like massive expectations necessarily for the Spurs, especially as far as teams that are coming off of a title go. Uh, but I think that that was kind of the official conclusion of the Duncan Parker Ginobili era and it kind of kind of the start of the bridge to the what would end up being a very abbreviated Kawhi Leonard era. Yeah, that's yeah. that's interesting that they both took care of those two uh, respective teams. I mean, I, this was a time when it sort of seemed like it was things were about to get super wide open. Um, 
and then the Warriors are sort of the team that really seized that opportunity and and ran stuff for a while. But I mean, this Clippers team sort of seemed like they were kind of trending. Like they might be that team, or they might at least be a better challenger to the Warriors in terms of being that that next big team that was just going to the finals every year. And you noted, Alex, at the time that we're discussing, you know, midway through this series, some people, Stephen A. apparently included, think that Memphis is going to hold on and beat Golden State in round two. So it, even though Golden State had just won 67 games, I think they were still very much facing that question of like, can a team that's this reliant on guards and this reliant on shooting? actually make it work and I think the answer midway through the second round of the playoffs was still probably not and obviously they would end up dispelling that uh pretty handily uh, a couple weeks later yeah I mean there was I mean there's always you know we come back to the Charles Barkley clips of him like doubting the Warriors like every step of the way and then all the way until they are holding the trophy up uh and I think you know now we've now we're at the point just five years later where we've flipped the opposite way, where we just assume that no team that is stacked with big men could ever win a title. You know, I mean, we're talking about, I mean, the, the 76ers, for example, one of the biggest teams in the league. Uh, people are just like, well, it won't work. There's no spacing, even though like half the people on that team are like six foot eight between six foot eight and seven feet tall. So like we've we've completely flipped the other way, which is interesting. Just five years later. Should we talk uh, just about the the game six like comeback in regards to like Harden's legacy and like just how improbable of a of a comeback that was? Yeah, absolutely. And this comeback uh, it ends up being a forty nine to eighteen run by Houston over the final fourteen minutes and thirty seconds of game six. So I, I think one of the things that really struck me, and, and especially when you're watching the highlights and it's just like bucket after bucket after bucket, one, the Clippers missed 14 shots in a row. I think there's like a garbage time Chris Paul three that goes in right at the end to break that, that streak. Um, but not only does Houston like crawl back into this game and win, they end up like it ends up being a blowout the other way around. Like they they come back from so far down and then end up winning the game by 12 points. And you can just tell how demoralized the Clippers are after this game. And I, I think you know, we've kind of touched on it throughout the pod, but the way that it happened, I think it's especially demoralizing. Like one of the first, uh, one of the first plays to start the comeback is Terrence Jones driving into three guys going behind his back and throwing up an offhand, like hook shot, basically gets the foul, makes both free throws. Um, just a lot of careless play by the Clippers on both ends. There's an and one where Dwight catches underneath and Blake Griffin just kind of gives them like a light shove and Dwight just easily finishes and I, I think hits the free throw after that. Like, just, just careless play on both ends. Um, the Clippers clearly went into play not to lose mode and, you know, start shooting late in the shot clock, getting bad shots, turnovers. Um, but to go back to your original question, James, James Harden's on the bench for the vast majority of this. It, it feels like now, because he's kind of entered a different dimension as a player, that people don't necessarily hold this against him. Maybe it's because they won the game. Um, but I mean, in the overall legacy of things, I mean, it's, it's a fairly damning issue, I guess. I don't know. How do you guys feel about it? Yeah. Is it, is it almost, is it more damning to have your team win while they were purposely benching you or more damning to lose when you like play well and defeat? Like, I, I don't I feel like right. it's, um, like you could just, I could just never imagine 
like take like Steph or LeBron or Kawhi or Giannis. Like, could you imagine this like happening to any other no. of like the true superstars in the league? No, not at all. And, and it's so interesting that it happens to Harden because even though he's not isoing quite as much at this time, he's still isoing a ton, especially when you're adjusting for what year it is. And like, he's the guy that's often driving and kicking, driving and kicking, setting all these guys up. He's the reason that Trevor Reza is taking 555 threes. It's because he's drawing the defense and kicking to the corner. So the fact that they're still getting these looks without him on the court is, is pretty baffling. The, yeah, I mean, I'll just, just say some of this is also like, like pretty like very lazy defense by the Clippers and like uh, just like no direction on offense. But I agree that it's it's a pretty bad look for Harden. So another another play that really stood out to me that like seemed to just kind of be one of those momentum um, like big time momentum plays uh, was when DeAndre Jordan like dives and saves the ball from out of bounds on the baseline like legitimately like lays out and it goes to Corey Brewer who's wide open in the corner and Corey Brewer hits a three um, like that was just a very demoralizing possession. Um, for the yes. Clippers. And I also just, I noticed there were like a few times when, like the guy that I always remember from that comeback is Josh Smith, just for whatever reason. Like Corey Brewer was just as heavily involved, but Josh Smith just sort of stands out to me because he's Josh Smith. And like Blake Griffin's guarding him during this entire run. And he's doing the thing on like his first couple threes he's definitely just kind of daring him to shoot right because it's it's josh smith um like what do you do as as blake griffin there are you, are you supposed to be like taking that shot away from him like because you have such a big lead and like the only thing that can hurt you is threes like and he's probably not going to take you off the dribble like what what could they have done differently during this run that's a great question and i think it's very evident that they're playing off Josh Smith as they should. Same with Terrence Jones. Like there's one possession where Josh Smith it gets like a half-hearted screen from Dwight Howard, and he he kind of you know ducks inside the three-point arc, backs it out. You can tell he's thinking about shooting it. Drives in again, backs it out, nothing there, and just just launches and hits. And you can kind of see Blake Griffin being like, "Come on, what, what? How do I defend this?" Um, like I think it's pretty clear that they were told play off of him. But then after he hits two, I think they start coming out and, and Josh Smith starts getting some layups, starts getting some some transition baskets. Like to me, I think what they what the Clippers could have done different comes down to effort. And it's easy for us to say as guys sitting on the couch rewatching a game. But I mean, it just it it's very clear that this team doesn't have like the intangible, you know, step on their throats type of mentality that you'd often see in a closeout game like this at home. Did this, right. And- did this. Did this Clippers team ever have that ability to up it defensively that way? I think maybe some of them did, but certainly not as a unit. Yeah, I mean, well, especially Blake, who is never a good defender. And then you get into a playoff series where he's playing 40 minutes and giving it all offensively. And then he's already not good. And then you talk about tired legs and a guy who is not a good defender fundamentally or effort-wise. And it's just going to get even worse. Like, he's not going to close out on like anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, so you I can think, understand poking like, him on Josh Smith then. That's, like, why it's so it's so hard to build around point guards. Like, because Chris Paul is by far their best defensive player. But 
he just by himself can't kind of choke out a team defensively the way that like Giannis or Kawhi or LeBron could in their prime. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, I mean, did, did you guys think it was, knowing what we know now, and this had kind of come out at the time, but I think it, it would kind of get worse over the next couple of years. Did you get the sense that like this Clippers team, just watching them, and it's and it's a little bit different watching highlights versus watching a full game, but did you get the sense that there just wasn't, you know, this, this bond between these guys? I don't know. I, I don't feel like that necessarily played out really i mean i think in some of the moments i don't know it's tough because i think you know in some of the moments that they're down or they're losing you can tell they're either like confused about what they're supposed to be doing or they're frustrated at each other but you know maybe that that gets so masked by how exciting the highlight plays are and how perfect all those look i mean those you know those chris paul pick and roll like dimes to blake griffin for dunks look so perfect that and they're they're such a highlight play. It's it's hard to like um, watch those and imagine that these guys don't really like each other. And right. uh, yeah, I think I think I think that kind of creates an illusion to some extent. I think it's tough to tell like on the court during the game, but you know after this game, after they blow this huge lead, you know all the Clippers are just walking back individually to the locker room, very sullen. You know, there's nobody, nobody is attempting to say anything. Nobody's attempting to bring everybody together. There's not a lot of, you know, we'll come back for game seven. Like it almost looked like they knew they were going to lose game seven, even though I I think the belief at this point was that they were the better team and the more complete team. Um, But, you know, they knew going back to Houston, it, it was no surprise that, that the Rockets end up closing this out in game seven. Yeah. I think, I think once that comeback happens, the the energy that you need to you know rally back as the Clippers you have to be so strong as a team that I don't think they had that and it's kind of how I felt and I think you know after the <laughs> the J.R. Smith incident for the Cavs uh, in the NBA Finals a few years back I think that's how a lot of people felt about that where it's like well if the Cavs win this game and they can get the momentum then there's always a chance but when you're when you come so close and then there's such a devastating turn of events, I think when a team's not that close knit, it just completely destroys them. Is there a case to be made that the Rockets making this comeback like ended up giving them some sort of like bad cosmic karma going forward? Well, I was I was gonna say like I think there was zero chance Kevin McHale was gonna remain the coach there for for very long after they made that comeback with Harden on the bench um like I just feel like that's the type of decision that is going to get you fired if you're a coach in the NBA um Mm -hmm. eventually down the road um yeah I just I the Rockets you know judging them is just so tough on on the playoff defeats because some of them have been really memorably um, bad uh, by Harden in terms of just kind of falling uh, apart uh, later in series, later in games. Uh, but they also just had the the Warriors there that whole time, and so it's it's really just tough to judge them, knowing that the Warriors are there and knowing that in many years they would have been the best team in the Western Conference. I think in like many previous years, but it just happens that they're up against one of the best teams of all time. 
I think it's pretty clear too, and, and we mentioned this at the top that I, I don't know if you can trace it back to this specific game, but probably this series uh, is kind of set the Clippers um, on a different path going forward. And you never know it at the time, but I, I think this was their best chance, um, you know, to really break through, especially because the Warriors hadn't truly emerged yet. The Warriors were so much more vulnerable in 2015 than they were in 2016, of course, until game seven of the finals. And then once you get to 2017 and Durant's on the team, that window for the Clippers and really every other team is virtually slammed shut. Um, and looking forward, I mean, this was kind of Blake Griffin's last good complete season, right? I think he played the following season. He played 35 games um, and, you know, like the, the knee issues kind of start to resurface. The season after that, he misses 21 games. That's when he had the run in with the like the team. I don't know if he was like an assistant coach or whatever that that weird situation was where he punched that guy. And then the year after that, he plays half the season with the Clippers and he's out. And this whole era is basically over. Yeah, I mean, this this 2014-15 season is Blake's last all-star game until uh, last season. You know, his first full year with Detroit Mm -hmm. because he just kept missing so much time and and stuff like that. So the Blake Griffin that we saw in this series was... I mean, I I would I would say it's prime Blake Griffin. Uh, it's not the version of him that's shooting like a you know a three, uh, you know shooting threes and handling the ball a ton. But he's still averaging five assists a game this season and you know twenty one points on seventeen shots. And yeah, I think I think and the the Clippers never made it out of the first round after this year. How do you think this team would have matched up against the Warriors if they'd played them? If they'd won this series and played them? And I mean, it's tough to say because obviously Memphis gave Golden State a little bit of trouble in round two and, and the Clippers have some size. I mean, it's, it's not like DeAndre Jordan is going to be bodying anybody in the post, but I mean, he had, he had some moves and obviously he was athletic and, and more athletic than whoever the Warriors were going to throw out at center. I, I think you're assuming too that another week or two removed from this hamstring injury, Chris Paul is maybe back at 100% for the Western Conference Finals. Like, I mean, I, I think based on how good the Warriors were in the regular season, being a 67-win team, they would be the favorite. But, I mean, I would, it wouldn't have been shocking if, if the Clippers had won that series in six or seven. Yeah, I mean, they, they wouldn't really have an offense or a um, uh, an answer for DeAndre athletically. You know, they were doing Draymond and Bogut at center and uh, an unfortunate amount of Festus Azili. But that so that could have been an issue. But you you figure if you have Draymond on Blake, that's a pretty good matchup for the Warriors in terms of stopping Blake. And then you just kind of hound CP3 with probably either Iguodala or Clay. You might have Curry just like chase around Redick. I'm not really sure, mm-hmm. but I think I think they had I think they had the personnel to to make things tough on the Clippers. But at the same time, like it wasn't a surprise me if a lot of the you know players on each team kind of canceled each other out. To some extent, because you also, well, you would have also had Chris Paul on Steph Curry and, mm. and everything like that, and Harrison Barnes and Matt Barnes, <laughs> you know, mano a mano. I feel like you need someone, you need role players to step up to like go on these deep playoff runs. And I just don't know, like, one or both of Crawford and Matt Barnes are going to have to make a, a bunch of threes in that series for them to win. Right. And I just don't think that's something that was all that realistic. Um, 
Like, I just think the guys, like the Matt Barnes level guy and the Jamal Crawford level guy, were just a notch lower than they needed to be. Like, like if you just have like Trevor Reza instead of Matt Barnes, then all of a sudden you, you've got something where somewhat the, the that player is going to be getting a lot of open threes in a series against the Warriors. Um, and I just don't know if they had the guys to to make make that count because, um, you know, the Warriors had the personnel to really make things tough on CP3, like you were saying, Alex, with just multiple options, multiple big options that um, he won't be able to muscle around and stuff. So I think I think it could have gone like six, maybe it could have gone seven, but um, they would have just needed a lot to go right from their role players. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think they had the personnel, at least the names. You know, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been that shocking if Matt Barnes had two really good games in a seven game series, or Jamal Crawford got hot and won them a game off the bench. Like, it, I, I don't think I don't think they were necessarily all that undermanned. Um, but at the same time, I mean, this was also the year that we really found out who Andre Iguodala was. You know, I mean, the way he emerged. I, I think I think you're right, James. That Golden State, when you go man to man probably wins the role-player battle, you know, if you just line up the rosters 1 through 10. Yeah, and I, I don't know all the context of these games, but I just looked at the regular season uh, record, and the Warriors were 3-1 three, uh, three and one against the... Uh, the Warriors were 3-1 and one against the Clippers in the regular season. They won the first game 121-104, to then they lost the second one 186 uh, third one they won 106 to 98, and fourth one they won 110 to 106. So I mean it was it was pretty back and forth. Even though you know those last two games were close, there's two blowouts on each side. So um, yeah, I think I think it. I mean I I would love to see it, but that's the big bummer. Is like it just it would have been nice to see um, them give them like their best shot, you know, and just sort of just see how it went, but. Um... I feel like we were being robbed of a lot of what if series for this entire past decade. Like we're all, we're always like one game away from seeing the matchup that everybody really wanted, you know, and, and Rockets warriors, we've had that battle a few times and it's been all right. But uh, I, I think everybody like just as fun as this Clippers team was, um, it would have been fun to see them on a bigger stage. I also think it's crazy watching this game, like trying to put yourself back in the headspace of 2015. Like it's inconceivable that Chris Paul would join the Rockets just a couple years later. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, because we didn't we also didn't know until later that like CP3 and Blake hate each other. And you know, everything around that franchise uh in general fell apart. Um but yeah, it is it is pretty inconceivable. What else do you guys have just general notes? I think I, you know, dumped out most of my notes. Um I thought Oh, we also watched, or at least I did, there's a, you can find after game four, there's a video of, uh, there's not the full video of the game, but the, the like ending TNT segment about it with inside the NBA. It was rowdy on the TNT set to say the least. Um, <laughs> it was, there was, I mean, it was, that was the game that they went full hack at Jordan and DeAndre Jordan shot 34 free throws and made 14. Barkley said, I think Hacker Jordan works. The Clippers would have won by 50 if he made his free throws. Uh, and then at, at some point, uh, Shaq takes off his belt and starts slapping, slamming it on the table. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
and saying that the Rockets got their ass whooped, and then he's smacking it towards Ernie and saying, get back on defense and rotate, uh, which I thought was pretty funny, and Shaq was like very, everyone was kind of losing it, and there's a point where uh, Barkley asked Kenny, because Kenny's going on some, or he, he started a sentence with not to beat a dead horse, and then Chuck goes, have you ever beat a dead horse, Kenny? And then Ernie looks like he's just about to lose it. I watched that whole first take clip, like I said at the top. There was a lot of Spencer Hawes talk as well. Stephen <laughs> A. Be- begins the segment by saying that he picked the Clippers to win the title, mostly because of Spencer Hawes. Uh, and then he followed that up by saying, <laughs> Spencer Hawes has not panned out, uh, which is an understatement. Um, but they also kind of touched on what we were just talking about, which is they, they kept referring to the Clippers as the show. And, you know, they really were kind of the premier show in the NBA at that point. You know, the Cavs hadn't really taken off. The Warriors were a couple of years away from, I think, stealing that title away. Has there been another team that's captured that? Um, you know, obviously, Golden State you know, was, was the team of the decade and, and captured plenty of attention. But I think it was more about their personnel and the off-court stuff than, like, how they actually played. Like, has there been another team that's been even close to as fun as this Pete Clippers team was? Well, what about, I mean, what about the Heat teams? I mean, I, I know they were maybe more disliked, but, like, they were still, in terms of just showtime, like, putting on a show, like, um, I mean, that was always pretty wild. I, at least for me, the Lob City thing, the excitement of that was, you figure if you watch one of those games that you're probably going to see a poster dunk, I mean, that's kind of the case for, like, the Heat, too. But you 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 know there's always a chance that you would have tuned in to see a highlight play that was one of the best plays of the year. I mean, this is the team that had, you know, Blake Griffin going over Mozgov, Blake Griffin over Kendrick Perkins, DeAndre destroying Brandon Knight's career on an alley-oop. Um, I mean, this team had some of the best highlight plays of the decade in terms of just dunks. And I don't know necessarily if there's a team that kind of reached that but you're right in that like the the heat from like a any type of highlight play as possible perspective was up there and the warriors from the shooting perspective are way up there um but i think i think this is this might be my favorite team to watch ever uh in terms of just pure entertainment value the Heat, I mean, I, I guess I was thinking teams since then. The Heat were definitely up there. Um, you know, I think LeBron and Wade, just just like the alley-oop potential and the like full-court pass potential just kind of became, or kind of had a life of its own. So they're, they're certainly in that category. But I think very few teams, especially teams that weren't like winning at the highest level, like the Clippers, you know, a team that never went to the finals, was really never based on the results, like all that much of a contender. For a team like that, I think to really capture people's attention um, is unique. I mean, I think they did it in a different way, but the Suns in the mid two thousands, maybe were close to that level. Yeah. Uh, I was, I was going to say maybe the Suns, but um, yeah, I mean, they're actually kind of similar, I guess, to this Clippers team in a lot of ways, just they never really got over the hump. Um, I was thinking maybe like we, we could be talking about the Pelicans like this in a few years. We could be talking about the Grizzlies like this in a few years. Like I think Ja and Zion both have that type of extreme highlight real potential. Um, but they're obviously not quite there yet in terms of team success. 
Yeah, I think I think since this Lob City team, I if you if you kind of take the Warriors out of the conversation, I don't think there's been a team. I mean, I think I think you can to maybe to some extent the the Thunder with KD and Westbrook because they both became so you know ball dominant and the stuff you'd see from KD just from a scoring perspective was ridiculous and that was Westbrook's athletic prime so you'd see him do some insane stuff but nothing like Lob City. I had a few notes on just random stuff uh, as usual. The sheer width of the Rockets jerseys. <laughs> I mean this was before the NBA switched to Nike. Uh, I think this was Adidas at the time. Like these Rockets jerseys are, they really harken back to like if you watch Kenyon Martin highlights at Cincinnati, where the edge of the the edge of the jersey sleeve is basically like halfway to the bicep, uh, easily the widest jerseys in the league. I uh, just needed to make a note of that. I hate those Rockets jerseys. Um, like I mean, the the width is yeah, that's bad too. But just um, like the Yao Ming, T Mac, like the, the yep. ones that kind of came in during that era, like they're just terrible. Yeah. I mean, do, how do you feel about the Steve Francis era ones? Um, they're, those are just kind of like mediocre. Uh, yeah. I, the, the, the only ones I've really ever liked have been like the Hakeem era. Yeah. Yeah. Those have aged very well. I, th- I think the the Francis ones are objectively like bad, but as we move further away, they become cool. I like a lot of the jerseys around that time. Yeah, I mean they're, they're sort of novelty, like interesting kind of. I mean they're they're not like all time great level like novelty like those like rappers right. ones or anything like that. But yeah. they're, I mean, they're they're in- they're interesting. They they kind of remind me of the like the teal Pistons ones where it's like ah uh, yes. They're just kind of like funky. Um, no one's going to say they're amazing, but they're, they're kind of cool to have around. Mike Tirico, I think, is worth noting. He's he's on the call for game six and is borderline giddy as this comeback is happening. <laughs> I think his call of the, the final Josh Smith three, he, he is openly laughing on the telecast as Josh Smith hits that three. <laughs> We need more of that. We need more of the. You need. You need to help the fans understand what a Josh Smith step back three means in the context of the NBA. I really. I mean, uh, you you kind of feel for Blake um, as this is happening. Just at, like if you've ever played basketball, like the the feeling of letting a terrible shooter shoot and then them somehow catching fire and making you pay. It's like nothing more frustrating. Uh, This feels like displaced Roto hoops frustration. (laughs) (laughs) I I think I know exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) Um, Clean cut JJ Redick, no tattoos, extremely short socks, like kind of looks like a different guy at this point. He's, he has not quite ascended to like full Adam Levine level. <laughs> right, and Stephen Stephen A is also commending his defense against James Harden. Yeah, uh, which I really I really enjoyed. <laughs> yeah, JJ Redick putting the clamps on Harden. Yeah, <laughs> the clamps down. Uh, the last major thing that I have in my notes, or really the last thing I have in general, is I, I do want to talk a little bit about Josh Smith, who at this point is virtually an NBA meme. I'm talking now, and even in 2015. He was approaching that status. I mean, this was this was the year that he was 
bought out by Detroit and his contract was stretched. And I mean, that was obviously just a laughable story at the time. And he ends up getting picked up by Houston, plays 55 games in the regular season, um, ends up actually playing for the Clippers the following season. And then is back with Houston um, and finishes out with three games with the Pelicans in 2017, 18. But uh, this was really his last complete season. I mean, he played, he actually led the league in games played with 83 this season um, and never, <laughs> never played more than 55. And it was, you know, a pretty steep drop off obviously since then. But I, I think he is, he's in the discussion for best players to never make an all-star game. I know, I know maybe that sounds drastic, but you have to consider the caliber of players who've made all-star games in the past. And also consider that a couple years later, or maybe one year later, the entire Hawks team was named player of the month. Um, I, I just think we, we've seen, I would say there are at least 10 to 20 players in NBA history who were worse than Josh Smith, but made an all-star game. I mean, yeah, his, his I guess, <laughs> descension from his prime uh, to, like, not being in the league was about as harsh as it can get. But I think we, I think, you know, when we were doing that all decade team, uh, all decade fantasy team, and we took a look back at like what Josh Smith had done. I mean, you were talking just pure fantasy. He was like, at one point he he had the seventh best fantasy rating. He was like always top 20, you know, basically in his prime of like per game stuff. And, you know, his two-way ability was crazy. I mean, he was he was a guy whose prime was also really entertaining in terms of, you know, he'd be his, you know, he always had, like, LeBron-esque power dunks. He was doing chase downs, you know, a steal and a half, a block and a half per game. Um, kind dunk of a contest. D- d- yeah, dunk contest. Kind of a position that doesn't really exist anymore, which was, like, the hyper-athletic, non-shooting, like, two-way power forward. Um, so it was very weird, uh, career for, for Josh Smith. He, I mean, he made an all defensive team, uh, one, one year, like he did. I, I do not remember that. I'm, I'm looking at his, like, I can't really get on board with what you're saying, Nick. Like, I, I think he's had better, he's had some seasons that are better than plenty of seasons where guys have made all-star teams, but. Like, I'm just looking at, like, his true shooting percentages from, like, his prime, like, his Atlanta days. And um, he had a run where it was, like, 53 to 54%, which is still not good. Um, but a lot of those were, were below, like, 52% true shooting. So, um, defensively, he might be underrated defensively looking back. Oh, yeah. But How did he just... not make a first team? <laughs> He had a season well, where he was fourth in VORP and seventh in VORP. He's top 30 all time in career blocks. <laughs> 27th in NBA history in blocks, despite being out of the league basically at 30. As a six foot nine power forward in yeah. the biggest era. Insane. If think, you could still have, like, if, if prime Josh Smith was available, what would the demand be from NBA teams, do you think? Because like, I, I think on the one hand, Obviously, the shooting is is really bad, but on the other hand, like defensively, that's just such a versatile piece to have. Yeah. Um, if you can surround him with four shooters, uh, yeah. So let's say I think 2011-12 was his absolute peak. That was a lockout year, but he played 66 games, uh, had his best PER of his career, led the league in defensive win shares that year. 
it's tough to say. I mean, I think back then the fact that he was really not a three-point shooter at all wasn't counted against him in the same way that it would be now. I think now you would have to play him at center, right? Or have him in almost like a Zion role where you have to make sure everyone else... Well, he wasn't really a post-up guy, but I I think now, you know, if you were a team that... I mean, (laughs) if he was playing center for the Rockets right now, that would make sense. I mean, he wouldn't... You know, I mean, his three-point shooting wasn't great, but it was basically 30% throughout most of his prime, which is passable. And just as an athlete, you know, someone who can grab a rebound and just push in transition, um, I think I think I think he'd be in a fair amount of demand. How how about this? Would if you're the Indiana Pacers, would you rather have prime Josh Smith or Demontis Sabonis? Uh, I'd rather I'd rather have Josh Smith. I'll say it. I, I would say Sabonis, but it's close. I mentioned them just because, like, Miles Turner's kind of, like, the perfect center to have. Like, you need kind of, like, a Brooke Lopez or Miles Turner type mm-hmm. of Porzingis type of center that's going to stretch. But defensively, I feel like they could become, like, a, a pretty elite defensive unit if they had Smith there instead of Sabonis. He's only 34. It's, this is very possible. <laughs> <laughs> is it fair, James, to call him a poor man Sean Marion? Yeah, um, I think if you look specifically at like 05, 06 through 2011, 12, I mean, he had a, he had three straight years where he was at 2.6, 2.9, 2.8 blocks per game. Yeah, I mean, the, the big difference is obviously just being um, the three point shooting and the rebounding. Like, yeah, he was never as prolific of a rebounder as Marion was um, obviously not as good of a shooter. Uh but yeah, I mean, the, the rest of it is, is very much like Marion. Yeah, I think I underrate Sean Marion's shooting in my mind just based on how he physically shot the ball. But right. the, the numbers are surprisingly really good. I mean, he was never like a 40% shooter, but was basically hovering around like 33 to 35 for most of his career, which especially for that time was not bad at all. He was exactly where he needed to be for it to be for him to like be as valuable as he was like he, he made him just enough that the defense had to run out to him well all right fellas anything else no i think that's i think we clear out everything in in my notes and more did, did not expect as much josh smith talk but i'm, I'm happy we did it yeah, I, I, I expected at least this much. Okay. You're talking to here. That's a good point. Uh, yeah, I, I expected a, probably a little more Lester Hudson talk out of you guys. I'm a little disappointed <laughs> that we didn't have more Lester, but uh, this was a fun idea, Alex, and I, I think we'll have to consider this maybe for some other memorable series instead of just honing in on one game. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. 
Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.